Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about Alma 13 through 16. This is going to be Alma and Amulek's discourse on Melchizedek to the people of Ammonihah, which at first glance may seem like, why are they talking about Melchizedek to a bunch of apostate order of the new whore bad guys? Like, why are they even talking about this? Bryce is going to unpack, you know, maybe this is why he's talking about Melchizedek. And then in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters, there's some more preaching going on. Zeezrom's got some issues that he's going to work through, and Ammonihah is going to be destroyed. And so that, in a nutshell, is what's happening here. But if you remember, this is the second part of really one discourse. So the discourse to the people of Ammonihah goes through chapter 12 and into 13, but we split it up into two parts because of how Come Follow Me works. So remember, 12 just goes naturally into 13. And so in the 13th chapter, we have this great discourse where in the very first verse, it's very interesting. Look what it says. This is Alma saying, Again, my brethren, I would cite your minds forward to the time when the Lord God gave these commandments unto his children, and I would that you should remember that the Lord ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the order of his son, to teach these things unto the people. Now, cite your minds forward kind of makes it sound like going into the future. But what Alma is saying is, I want you to cite your minds forward or like our forefathers, F-O-R-E, forward, back in time, back into the beginning, back into the time when God ordained priests after his holy order. In other words, after the manner of what he's going to call the preparatory redemption before the foundation of the world. That's verse three. What that means to me is that before we came to this earth, we were ordained kings and queens, priests and priestesses unto the Most High God. We were ordained after his holy order to do good things. And we started, verse 5, in the same standing from the foundation of the world, meaning before we came to this earth, we were of the same standing. We had the same light. And as we progressed in the pre-earth life, everyone obtained different amounts of light, And he's going to segue this into his teaching of Melchizedek and grace and truth and what Melchizedek did to change hearts and minds. But he's trying to remind the people of Ammonihah, this is who you were. You guys were really good guys way back before you were born, before the foundation of the world. You were in this great standing. You were ordained after the order of the Son of God, verse 7, before the foundation of the world, and you were called with a holy calling. I think, Bryce, what he's trying to do is call their minds to who they are, and this is another way to call people to repentance. Yes, and the brilliance of what he's doing is he's got two audiences now, because you remember in chapter 11... Zeezrom was contending against Amulek, trying to destroy Amulek. So Zeezrom, with a hard heart, wants to find evidence against Amulek. But as Amulek speaks, Zeezrom's heart begins to turn. So that in chapter 12, Zeezrom now begins to ask questions. So chapter 12, verse 8, Zeezrom began to inquire of them diligently that he might know more concerning the kingdom of God. So now Alma is doing two things. He's speaking to the hard-hearted that are still listening, but now he has a softening heart 
Zeezrom, the very man who was contending against Amulek, trying to find fault, is now asking, what do I do? And in both of, in, in response to both of those audiences, the answer is the priesthood. Now, the priesthood doesn't come up much in the Book of Mormon, and this is a gem to help us understand the role of priesthood in all of our lives, not just those who hold offices, but anyone who exercises authority, a power, male, female, anyone who participates in ordinances. What role does the priesthood play? And he seems to be zeroing in on not just the wicked, but Zeezrom and saying, Zeezrom, let me tell you what role you could play. And this is the role that priesthood plays in our lives. And it can do it. We can do it in this wicked city. And so we're going to talk a lot about Melchizedek. But one of the reasons he seems to bring up Melchizedek is Melchizedek did the very thing that we can do right here in Ammoniah. So now chapter 13, verse 17, this Melchizedek was king over the land of Salem. Now Salem becomes Jerusalem. And so this is, this is our history. This is the house of Israel's beginnings. Melchizedek becomes the king over the land of Salem. And the people in Salem were very wicked and very abominable. Does that sound familiar, Zeezrom? The people in Salem were extremely wicked, like the people in Ammoniah are wicked. And they waxed strong in iniquity and abominations, and they were, gone, they were all gone astray and were full of all manner of wickedness. Do you see what Alma's doing? We can do what Melchizedek did. So what did he do? Verse 8, 18, But Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith and received the office of the high priesthood according to the holy order of God... Now, this is what priesthood does. Now, be careful not to limit it to those who hold offices in the priesthood. This is what the influence of priesthood power can do in our lives. Priesthood calls us to repentance. And they did repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in the land of his days. Therefore, he was called the Prince of Peace, for he was the King of Salem, and he did reign under his father. In other words, we can turn Ammoniah around. And one of the ways we do it, Zeezrom, is by yielding to priesthood power, yielding to the ordinances and the authority and the offices of the priesthood, all of us. If we yield to priesthood, we can find peace. Now, in the Doctrine and Covenants, in the Old Testament, everywhere you talk really about priesthood, you use the word rest. Notice the word rest comes up frequently in this discussion. Back in verse 6, if ever there was a summary of what priesthood does, being called by this holy calling and ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God, now this is what priesthood holders do, But this is also what priesthood ordinances do. This is why we go to sacrament. This is why we go to the temple. This is why we pursue priesthood ordinances, because priesthood teaches his commandments unto the children of men, that they may enter into his rest. So the purpose of priesthood is to understand what God wants me to do, and by yielding to that priesthood, by yielding to ordinances, by yielding to authority, by yielding to power, by yielding to priesthood, we learn what Heavenly Father wants us to do, and if we obey it, we enter into His rest. 
Now notice how often rest comes up. Verse 12, they entered into the rest of the Lord. Verse 13, that ye may also enter into that rest. End of verse 16, enter into the rest of the Lord. And then we're going to find that all throughout. We're going to find that in Doctrine and Covenants. I know we're going to go to Doctrine and Covenants 84 today, but the priesthood is to lead us to his rest. Now, let me just throw in this idea of how priesthood leads to rest. There is a fascinating idea in verse 2 that I have probably spent decades pondering. It says, those priests were ordained after the order of his son in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. In other words, the way they were ordained is a type of coming to Christ and being healed by Christ. Now, I know verse 3 talks about one way, what the manner is that they were called, they humbled themselves, they obeyed, and then they received his priesthood. But I want to push your minds to the manner in which you and I often receive the priesthood. Let me take a male who usually receives the priesthood by being ordained to an office in that priesthood. Now, I want you to ponder the last time you watched a male receive the priesthood. He was usually sitting. I always fold my arms. Every male I've ever seen receive the priesthood is folding his arms. His head is bowed. This young man is in a very, very submissive position. If you think about it, you can't see the young man, can you? Why? Because he's being shielded. He's being veiled by those who hold the priesthood and are ordaining him. Now, do you see the symbolism? He is in a submissive position, yielding to the authority, and he is shielded. And that is such the manner in which we come to Christ. We yield to Christ. We submit to him, to his authority, to his desires for me. We live the way he wants us to live. And if we do that, he will shield us and protect us and veil us. Now, if you think about a female, a veiled woman, now the symbolism here is a bride coming unto her husband, It's the church coming unto Christ, and she wears a veil, which is a very submissive act. It's the church submitting to our husband, which is Christ. And if we do that, that veil symbolizes his protection, that he covers us. Now, we learn from the temple that once you enter the veil, you're pulled through the veil into his presence. He is with you. If you are veiled, you're with him. Talk about entering into his rest. It is not only long-term, but short-term. We can enter into his rest every day of our life once we are pulled into that protective veil. We are with him We are embracing him inside that protective veil. Now, the only way you do that is by submitting to him, yielding your heart to God. And I love that phrase, the manner in which they were ordained 
is the symbol of how we come to God for redemption. And I think this is beautiful setting because Alma is looking at Zeezrom, who's been a prideful, arrogant little monster. And he's saying, you need to yield your heart. You need to submit and yield your heart to God. And if you do that, you will enter into his rest and he will protect you. That, that shield will flow over you. And if everyone in this city does that, if we all repent, that protection will flow over this whole city. It will keep the Lamanites at bay. We will be protected. We will be with God. That's what Melchizedek did in Salem. Using priesthood ordinances and priesthood covenants and priesthood power, he helped his people yield their hearts to God. And when they did that, the protective power of the priesthood made Salem a peaceful, wonderful place. We could do the same thing in Ammonia's Yezrum, and Alma seems to be saying we could do the same thing today in the latter days. Every home, every ward, every church, every one of us that will yield our heart to God and is in a humble, submissive position and is covered Now, if you know what the word atonement means, it means covered. That's how you qualify for the covering of the atonement, is you yield your heart. You submit to the requirements of God, the authority of God, and then that priesthood power protects you. If Melchizedek did it in Salem, we can do it in in Ammoniah, and the Latter-day Saints can do it wherever they live today. You can make your home a place of peace a sanctuary. You can make your heart a sanctuary where you dwell in the rest of God because the protective power of the priesthood is flowing over you. And I think that's why chapter 13 is here in Ammoniah, and it's a great symbol for all of us. But this Melchizedek, this man Melchizedek, is more significant than I think most Latter-day Saints realize. We have named the priesthood after him, Now, notice how the Lord uses models. The Abrahamic covenant didn't start with Abraham, but Abraham is the model of the covenant. So when the Lord says, we need to change the name of the the higher priesthood to avoid the too frequent repetition of the name of God, what are we going to change it to? Well, I know. Let's change it to the model. Melchizedek is the model of how to do this, how to hold how to officiate in, and how to yield yourself to the power of the priesthood. I just love to hear Mike talk about Melchizedek. Mike, tell us about this man, Melchizedek, that we all need to follow, male and female, all of us who yield ourselves to the priesthood. What do we need to know about Melchizedek? The Bible does not have very much about Melchizedek. There is so little. So go ahead and open up Genesis 14. I think that Genesis 14 is really laying out two orders. Genesis 14, to me, lays out Melchizedek's order, which the Book of Mormon really explains, but the other order in these beginning chapters of Genesis is the order of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, essentially their order is, I'm just going to take whatever I want. We're just going to go in, and we're just going to take it, and we're, there's no law and order, and nothing matters, and what, whatever I can take, might makes right. And I wonder if there's any application as we read some of the scriptures in our times today. 
The other order is the order of Melchizedek. Alma really breaks it down in the Book of Mormon, but the Bible gives us a little bit of a hint. So Abraham and his friends, they're in trouble. They've been captured. They've been captured, and, and there's this what's called the slaughter of the kings or the battle of the kings. And essentially what Abraham does is he goes and he rescues his nephew Lot from these kings up in the north, and he comes back, and it says as he, as he came back to home, back south, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. And there's this discussion where the king of Sodom says, Abraham, you can keep the stuff from war. The spoils of war pretty much went to the victors. And in the 23rd verse, Abraham says, I'm not even going to take a string or a shoe latchet, lest anyone says, you know, you've made Abraham rich. It's like the author of Genesis is trying to throw you a hint that Abraham wants to keep himself away from the order of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or the world in general. I mean, this king yes. represents the world that so many people worship. So either the house of Israel can worship Sodom, or they can worship the other king that comes up. This is yeah. beautiful symbol. This contrast of two orders. I really see that. And I see so much parallel today in our world. And so, yeah, Melchizedek comes out, and it says in verse 18 that he brought bread and wine, for he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemy into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. He, meaning Abraham, pays Melchizedek tithes of all. And it says that Melchizedek is priest of the Most High God. And in the Hebrew text, that's El Elyon. That's not Yahweh. Now, as Latter-day Saints, I'm talking to Latter-day Saints in this podcast, so I'm just going to package it. I there's so much I'm just going to package. So this is Mike Day packaging. I like to read El Elyon as Heavenly Father, Most High God, Yahweh as the Son of God, or Jehovah, as we typically call him in the Hebrew would be Yahweh. And so Melchizedek is this priest of the Most High God, and that's it. He just drops from the narrative. And I'm here to say there's so much more going on that the Bible doesn't have, and it's proof that the Bible is fragmentary. The next text that mentions Melchizedek in the Old Testament is the most quoted text of the Old Testament anywhere in the New. So I'm going to say that again. This verse I'm going to read is the most quoted verse in the entire New Testament. And so if you think about that, this must be a big deal. There must be something about this verse that the New Testament authors understood that maybe we've missed. And I'm stoked that Bryce mentioned the manner after which they were ordained. Because I think, to me, I can't read this any other way than temple. The manner in which you receive keys is in the temple. This is all in the temple. And it's all about Jesus, but it's also about us. This is participatory. And so I'm going to read it. It's Psalm 110. By my count, it's got three direct quotations in the New Testament, 15 strong allusions where it's really strongly alluded and about 10 what I call secondary allusions. So if you count all of these, we're talking close to 30 references in the New Testament. And I really do see this as, you know, as a Latter-day Saint, and I've been to the temple, I read this and I'm like, wow, there's something here. So here it is. Psalm 110. It's a messianic Psalm. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. And then verse 4, second part of the verse. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 4 and verse 1 are really important. Verse 3 
is very difficult in the Hebrew. If you get into the Hebrew text, there are so many different ways to read verse 3, but just know that right now in verse 4, thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so he's mentioned there, and then we have verse 1, which is so commonly quoted in the New Testament, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Okay, so first we're just going to hit the easy pitch. Verse 1 is all about Jesus. Jesus is going to sit on the right hand of God until all the enemies are his footstool. Joseph Smith said the greatest enemy is death. Jesus conquered both of them, physical and spiritual. So verse 1 clearly is an allusion to Jesus. But verse 4 is talking about Jesus, in my opinion, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but it's also talking about you being a priest or a priestess after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek established an order, like Bryce mentioned. He changed a city. He changed a people. Salem is probably Jerusalem. Psalm 76 verse 2 makes the identification that Salem is Jerusalem. Uh, Shalom is peace, the city of new peace. Jerusalem's had many different names in Jewish tradition. It has like 70 or 72 different names, but one of them is this idea of new peace. And so... Psalm 110 is about kingship, and it's about Jesus. Now I want to talk about another level to this psalm. This is first temple stuff, first Israelite temple. And so if you haven't heard this stuff before and you're like, what's he talking about? Go back and listen to our podcast on first Israelite temple. Before the destruction of the temple, before the temple was destroyed in 586, there was this religion where we have this whole order of priests known as Melchizedek priests. After the temple is destroyed, some of the Bible is rewritten, and the Levitical priesthood is put on the, the top shelf. The Levitical priesthood was given through descendancy. And so if I was of the tribe of Levi, I would receive the Levitical priesthood. And so the idea swirling around in Jesus' day was that the Levites were kind of in control and it's complicated because you have the Maccabean revolt. But just know that the Levitical priesthood kind of takes a top shelf and the Melchizedek priesthood is lost. We don't have any reference to this outside of these references. And I'm packaging this. I think what's happening is the king and queen are enthroned and they are told, Lord, verse 1, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In other words, the king and queen are symbolically or ritually sitting at the right hand of God because they are the king and the queen. Sitting at the right hand of God means being in their favor. From a temple context, when we receive our ordinances of the temple, the Lord is saying the same thing to you. You are clothed, washed, anointed. That's what they do to kings. You are covered. You're You've covered. you got that flow of protection covering you. And you sit on the right hand of God. And so you become, verse 4, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melech, Zedek. Melech is king, Zedek is righteousness. So we become kings and queens after the order of righteousness, after the order of his son. Now, we talked about this in the Hebrews podcast, so I'm going to be brief, but you can go back and listen to it. In Hebrews 7, this is an important argument that Paul is making about Jesus. One of the arguments that was going around in the day of Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, was that Jesus was not a Levite. So how could he have any authority? Because he clearly did not have Levitical lineage or descent. And so Paul unpacks his argument, and he uses Melchizedek to teach a great truth. So notice what it says. So go to Hebrews 7. So he talks about Melchizedek in verse 1 and 2. He was a king of peace, and he was a priest continually. But then skip down to verse 5. 
the author of Hebrews says, Verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. So the Levites were the collectors of the temple tax or the tithe. That is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Verse 9, And as I may so say, Levi also who receives tithes paid tithes in Abraham. That's a very difficult verse for modern readers. Verse 10, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So let me just unpack verse 9 and 10 so we can see the argument of the author of Hebrews. The argument of verse 9 and 10 is this, that Levi was inside of Abraham. If you remember, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Levi. From Levi comes the Levitical priesthood. So Abraham predates Levi by a long time. But the author of Hebrews 7 says in verse 9 that Levi was in Abraham. In other words, his argument is because the seeds of Levi were in Abraham, Levi was subservient to Melchizedek because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Hence, therefore, Levi was subservient to Melchizedek. Therefore, the Melchizedek authority trumps Levitical authority. That's what his argument is. And in the rest of Hebrews 7, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is after this order. Look what it says in verse 17. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's his argument. His argument is Jesus doesn't need to have Levitical authority. He doesn't need to be a Levite because he is after the order of Melchizedek. And that's it. The, the Bible does not give us very much information about the Melchizedek priesthood. But what is interesting to me is there's so much tradition swirling outside of the Bible about who Melchizedek was. And I'm going to take just a minute to reference some of this so we can kind of see it and, and kind of understand it. Because in Hebrews 7, it makes this interesting distinction. And then I think Joseph Smith unpacks this. In Hebrews 7, verse 3, it says that this guy Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. And Joseph Smith, in the uh, Joseph Smith translation, he changes this. And what does he change it to? That the priesthood is without beginning or end. Not Melchizedek. The priesthood doesn't have father or mother. Not Melchizedek. Yeah. Joseph Smith changes, for this Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order of the Son of God, which order was without father, without mother, without descendant. So he's pointing to the authority of the priesthood, not necessarily the individual holder, Melchizedek. Now, that's an important thing. But know that the author of Hebrews is aware of tradition. And so here's kind of the tradition of what's swirling around during the time when this was written. And this is, like I said, you don't have to believe this, but it's good to know that outside of the Bible, there were all these traditions. And so this is coming from a text called Second Enoch. And in this text, it's Second Temple literature, there's this notion that the brother of Noah is married to this lady, and she becomes pregnant miraculously. And she dies at the point of giving birth because she's shocked that how can I possibly be pregnant? And out of the womb comes this fully developed individual, and this individual is Melchizedek. And Gabriel takes him by the hand, and he takes him up to the heavens to return to earth after the flood to reestablish a holy order. 
Now, a lot of this stuff is very supernatural, but know that in this tradition, Second Enoch, Melchizedek is without father and mother, without descent. He's like this miracle person. Now, as a Latter-day Saint reader of this, I read this and say, wow, there's a little bit in here like pointing to Jesus, right? Jesus is born of this miraculous way. He's associated with angels. He's establishing an order. So I see this as a type. I don't take this literally, but the author of Hebrews is citing these traditions. And I don't even know if he's necessarily saying that he believes them, but he's talking to an audience that understands these traditions. And so he's speaking their language. And I think that's important to know that that's what's going on. Another interesting thing, this was discovered in 1965, and it's called 11Q13. And what that just means is it's a document found in Cave 11 at Qumran, and it's not the entire thing. It's a fragment, and it's all about Melchizedek. And I'm going to post this in the show notes. It probably, Bryce, would make for a really boring podcast if I just sat here and read it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it a Mike Day packaging of what the Melchizedek fragment is saying. It's talking about a guy named Melchizedek that's going to come, and he's going to release man from their sins— And he's like this divine being. The text is going to call him one of the Elohim, one of the divine beings that stood in the council of the gods and that he holds judgment. And through his authority, he's going to release the prisoners, to release the prisoners from bondage. And he's going to bring good news and announce salvation and comfort his people. Everything I just said to you is a Benedite's message. Everything I just said to you is the Book of Mormon. Now, granted, it's written in Hebrew, and it's packaged in first century, you know, second temple literature. But as a reader of the Book of Mormon, if you read the Melchizedek fragment, you're like, oh my gosh, does this sound familiar? If you've been to the temple, ask yourself, do they talk about speaking comfort proclaiming liberty to the captives? Do they talk about divine beings in the council before we were born that come to earth to proclaim salvation, to free people from sin? You guys, I read this and I just say, there's some really cool stuff in here about Melchizedek. And so Bryce, when when you read Alma 13 and you read about what Alma says about him, how would you say to somebody that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus? Well, I think what's beautiful about this is the fact that the Lord renames the priesthood and names it Melchizedek impels us to understand the whole Melchizedek priesthood and Melchizedek as a type of Christ. Because if I want to be a holder of the priesthood, or for anyone, a member of the church, if I want to receive the blessings of the Melchizedek priesthood, I need to understand Melchizedek. And you can't understand Melchizedek without tying him to the Savior. Because Melchizedek is a type of Christ in all of our lives. His authority is the Savior's authority. So by yielding to the Melchizedek priesthood, I'm really yielding to Jesus. And so people sometimes get upset by, you know, in the church, we do what the prophet says, or we follow our bishop or our stake president, and they get caught up in the fact that we're following a human being. No, we are following a human being who holds an authority that we call Melchizedek, but really represents Jesus. And so every single time I yield to the prophet, guess who I'm yielding to? I'm yielding to the Savior. I'm yielding to Jesus because he is Melchizedek. He is the Melchizedek authority. And so anyone who holds keys after the order of Melchizedek represents Jesus. And everything we do when we make, when you go to the temple and you make covenants, all of those covenants are after the order of the Melchizedek priesthood. 
If you read the sealing ordinance carefully, men and women enter into the order of the priesthood, which is Melchizedek. They come unto Jesus. And so I think all of this is important because by naming the priesthood Melchizedek, Jesus is impelling the Latter-day Saints to come to understand who Melchizedek is and who he represents. And simply put, when you yield yourself to Christ and obey his commandments, he covers you. He shields you and covers you. And that's what the atonement means, is to cover. And so this is a beautiful chapter saying to Zeezrom in the middle of a wicked city, and also saying to the Latter-day Saints in the middle of whatever cities they live in, if you want the protective power that God is offering, you need to yield and come to Jesus, just like Melchizedek did, just like everyone who holds Melchizedek authority or participates in Melchizedek ordinances, is doing symbolically. We are coming to Christ. I find it interesting in Alma 13, Bryce, where it says, he was a prince of peace. Bells go off, right? Jesus. He reigned under his father. There's more bells. That's Jesus. He changed the city. I like how you packaged it, Bryce, and you said, this is one guy changed a city. Abraham was one guy that rescued Lot from these kings that took him over. Abraham and Melchizedek were just one person, but they stood in the midst of this Sodom and Gomorrah culture, and they said, I'm not going to play by their rules. I'm not going to do it. And Alma and Amulek are in Alma and Iha, and these guys are all like the order of the Nehors. They're just like so full of rage, and they're not humble, and then they throw them in prison, and Alma and Amulek are like, we're not playing your, we're not going to play by your rules. And so... I really do like all the traditions. What I find fascinating is so much of this is right here in the Book of Mormon, and there's even more, but notice what Alma says. He says, there were many before at Melchizedek, and there were many after, but none were greater. So he's like a big deal. And then he says, now I need not rehearse the matter. What I have said may suffice. Behold, the scriptures are before you, and if you will rest them, it shall be to your own destruction. Um, this leads into Alma's argument. So Paul's argument is Jesus is awesome, and he has authority from Melchizedek. Alma uses the, the Melchizedek argument differently, and his argument is this. Melchizedek worshipped the Son of God. He was a priest after the order of the Son of God. The Nehorites, the, the people of Ammonihah, don't believe God had a son. They're monotheists. That there's only God. And Alma is using their own scriptures to say, Melchizedek is my authority. See, Alma could have cited, hey, I was the chief high priest. They don't recognize that authority. But they both have the text of the scriptures. And so Alma takes him to the scriptures and goes way back in time and says, as Melchizedek got his authority from the Son of God, so do I. My authority trumps your authority. So both Alma and Paul are using Melchizedek to make arguments, but they're radically different. And the reason why I want to say this is because critics of the Book of Mormon bash Joseph Smith and say all Joseph Smith did with Alma is he's just cribbing Paul. He's just taking Hebrews and he's repackaging it and he's putting in the Book of Mormon. And my answer to the critics is if you read the text critically and you read the arguments that both Alma and Paul are making, they're not even making anywhere near the same argument, but they're both using Melchizedek to make their point. And so, wow, if Joseph Smith is just pulling this out of his hat, wow, he's a pretty amazing author, isn't he? And so let's bring this whole idea to a conclusion with Alma's words at the very end. So Alma brings up priesthood, he brings up Melchizedek to the people in Ammoniah, and then here's the point he makes. 
verse 27, 28, and 29. Here's the conclusion of this whole priesthood sermon. And now, my brethren, I wish from the inmost part of my heart with a great anxiety, even unto pain, that ye would hearken unto my words and cast off your sins and not procrastinate the day of your repentance, but that you would humble yourselves before the Lord. See, that's that symbolism. Humble yourselves before the Lord, call on his holy name, watch and pray continually that you may not be tempted above that which he can bear, and thus be led by the Holy Spirit of God. So if you humbly submit to God and obey his commandments, he will come in, veil you, and carry you. He will be your guide. He will be the Holy Ghost that speaks to you if you are humble and meek and submissive and patient and full of love and long-suffering, having faith on the Lord. Bryce, I have to say this. Uh, It's a big book. It's called The Great High Priest, The Temple Roots of Christian Liturgy, and it's by Margaret Barker. In the book, she says one of the big traditions about Melchizedek is he does two things symbolically. He provides bread and wine. This is all pre-Christian era stuff in symbolism of coming into God. And the second thing he does is he takes you by the hand through the veil into God's presence. Now, Margaret Barker is not a member of the church. She spends 300 pages citing all this extra biblical literature and these traditions about those two specific things about Melchizedek. You said it. Look what, look what you just said. Be humble, call in his name, watch and pray, and be submissive. That's verse 28. Go to the end of verse 29. Enter into his rest. That's the, ritually, that's coming into his place. Into his into the Holy of Holies. You got it. And if Latter-day Saints listening to this podcast will think about their temple ordinance as the whole point of the temple is to end up in his arms, surrounded by no one else but him. You end up in his arms, and he pulls you into his presence, into his rest. He loves you. He protects you. And there's the priesthood. That is the point of every priesthood ordinance, is that if we humble ourselves, obey, submit, he lifts us into his rest. He pulls us into his rest. Having the love of God always in your heart that you may be lifted up at the last day and enter his rest. So, beautiful chapter, chapter 13. Alma 14, the problem of evil. They're thrown in jail the, the many people are converted and they get rounded up and killed. This is a very difficult chapter, isn't it, Bryce? The evil people kick the righteous men out and then they take the righteous women. They take their wives and their children and their scriptures and they burn them. How can we witness this awful And that's scene? what Amulek says. Verse 10, Amulek, like the so many of us, when someone is suffering, when Amulek is watching women and children burn, You know what human beings do when they're burning. They are screaming in agony. And Amulek says, how can we watch this? We have the priesthood. We have the authority of God. Why don't we stop this? And by extension, do you see that what Alma is about to say to Amulek is the answer to everyone who says, why isn't God stopping their pain? Why is God allowing good people to suffer? Now, I know that's a very complicated question, and there are a lot of answers. 
But Alma gives two very, very important answers that we want to harp on, that this is why we're not going to stop them from doing this horribly evil thing. This is why God doesn't stop the pain. Now, I'm going to skip the first one. I want to go to the second one. So notice what he says. This is Alma chapter 14, verse 11. The spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth my hand for. In other words, here's the reason why we're not going to stop their pain. Now he's going to give the first one. I'm going to save that one because I think that's the one I want to talk, we want to talk the most about. But then he says after that, and. So notice the and. So after he says for, and then he gives one reason, and then he says and. He doth suffer that they may do this thing or that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just. And the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily. God can't condemn someone for something they wanted to do or thought about doing. He cannot condemn them by saying, well, you would have if I didn't stop you. The Lord has to have a righteous judgment against them. Justice needs to prevail. So the Lord needs to allow them to do bad things. God can't stop agency. Harold Kushner said the problem of evil is considered by many to be the ultimate test of any theological system. And I must say that in my interaction with people that attack faith, I think the problem of evil is a card that they can easily play, isn't it, Bryce? Yep, and they do so often. There can't be a God, because if there were a God, he wouldn't allow suffering. Gods don't allow suffering. Gods heal us from suffering. He must be a monster if he allows this to happen. How could you believe in a God that allowed the Holocaust? Or how could you believe in a God that allowed my father to die of cancer, as an example, or something like that? And I think that this is a real big problem. And so Alma 14 tries to unpack this, and Bryce is going to look at both these arguments. But the second argument is an important one. There's this idea of judgment, there's this idea of justice. I find it interesting that there are many times in the scriptures that evil is challenged. Rarely does it go unchecked. And if it does go unchecked, it seems like it doesn't go unchecked forever. That in the history of the world, as evil exists, eventually it's challenged. And here's what I think. I think maybe part of this with the problem of evil is it's an invitation to you to stand up. For you to stand up and say hey, not on my watch. And then I think the classic LDS argument is just simply agency. Agency. Right. I mean, I would like, God is going to reward me for my righteous actions. And so when I receive the reward, he's going to point to my righteous actions and my righteous desires. So what must he have in order to condemn those who are not righteous? He has to allow them to do unrighteous deeds he takes away their ability to do evil, he cannot give them a reward. It's interesting that Alma 42 mentions that if God were to just supersede and take away all of our agency, he would essentially cease to be God. So part of him being a God is allowing us to make choices, and that's got to be really difficult. It's got to be so hard. But the alternative is worse, to not allow us to make choices. So this is a tough chapter. It is. It is. But let's go back to the first reason we skipped, because this is the one that we need to shout from the rooftops, and this is the one that we need to understand. Why does God allow suffering? And Alma says, I'm not going to stop him 
because the Lord himself will fix this. The Lord will overcome their pain with glory and joy, and I'm not going to rob them of that. In other words, you see the pain, Amulek. You see what they're suffering. What you don't see is what God's going to do in just a few minutes when he embraces them after their suffering. The memory of the pain will go away once they are in his embrace. And if I take this away from them, that reward will not be theirs. C.S. Lewis taught this in The Great Divorce. He said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity, but you can get some lightness of it if you say that both good and evil, when they are fully grown, become retrospective. All this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. All their life on earth, too, will be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once obtained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. I need to read that again because you need to hear that again. Sometimes we say, in a painful moment, no future bliss can make up for this. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Now, the sinful, the wicked do the same thing. Sometimes the sinful say, and of some sinful pleasure they say, quote, I'm still quoting C.S. Lewis, let me but have this and I'll take the consequences. In other words, let me have this pleasure and I'll deal with the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. That good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. That is why in the end of all things, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. God allows temporary suffering because he very quickly fixes it. And once you are in his embrace, the memory of the pain will be converted into the happiness you feel in his embrace. Let me give you an example. My beloved wife has given birth 10 times. 10 times I have watched her go through an agony like no other on earth. And the moment that baby is in her arms, the memory of that pain is gone. It is completely erased and wrapped up in the joy of holding that little baby. And that's what heaven is. Once we are in his presence, in his embrace, it will work backwards and change the pain. It will not be what we remember. Of that I testify with all my soul. There is no earthly pain that heaven won't turn into a happiness. The cancer, the car accident, the, the horrible things that happen in this life, 
once we obtain the glory of God in heaven, it will work backwards and turn that pain into glory. That's a powerful teaching. It is. I I think it's so important. And I also think, Bryce, it's difficult for us to see this because we're on this side of the veil. If we could see the other half of Alma 14, if we could see the people that had that horrible thing happen to them enter into the embrace of their Father in heaven, I think we'd read it differently. And this is one of those things that we just have to take on faith. I'm so glad you mentioned the idea of birth. My wife said the same thing. It's amazing how you forget the pain when you have the child. I just think that's a beautiful analogy. Is so good. So while this chapter is very difficult, it also has a lot of really cool things in it. And so I just want to throw a couple thoughts at you as far as types of Jesus. So we have this horrible thing where Alma and Amulek are taken in prison, and it says that they, they have to watch the destruction of these people. And, it, and then they're questioned by this guy, this judge who was after the order of the Nehors in verse 16. I'm once again reading Alma 14, verse 16. And it says that he answered him nothing. And then the author Mormon tells us that he's three days in prison in the 18th verse. And then they're once again questioned and they answer him nothing. Now they're in prison for a lot longer. If you skip down to the verse uh, 22 in the fourth line, it says that they're there many days. But Mormon really wants to drive home the point that they're in prison for three days. And that's really what he's hammering. And then it says that they gnash their teeth and they spit on him and they mock him. And And they keep saying, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Yeah. As a reader and a lover of the New Testament, I think Mormon's doing something here, isn't he, Bryce? He's just pointing to the Savior. And I think there's something beautiful about finding Jesus everywhere, finding him in the lives of prophets. It's very easy to read through Alma chapter 14 and miss him, but there's something about finding Jesus always in the text. And to say, oh my goodness, Alma and Amulek in Ammoniah are a lot like Jesus in his final days, where they berated him, they mocked him, they hurt him, they, they asked him to save himself, they were, he was covered by the earth, and then he just comes walking out free. Yeah. And like Jesus, they run away from him. The earth is rent in twain. They, they walk out of the earth. Jesus comes out of the belly of the earth. Look at the end of verse 25. It says, Alma and Amulek, they rose up and they stood on their feet. If you've ever been to the conference center, when the prophet walks in, everyone stands up. And it's not that we worship the prophet, but the prophet represents Jesus, who represents the Father. And the indication to me, and I read this this way, in the council in heaven, before we came to earth, we stood in the council. We stood and we made covenants, and we promised Jehovah we would come down and do everything that we promised we would do. We, we stood in his presence, and I believe that verse 25 is future pacing, that when the Messiah comes back, when Jesus comes back to earth, the righteous will stand on their feet. They will stand. And that's even the root of the Greek word for resurrection. The word for resurrection, it literally is to stand up. And so I, the the words are, are pregnant with meaning. This whole thing is about Jesus. I can't help but just geek out. Chapter 14, in the midst of all this messiness, Bryce is all about Jesus. And I, re- well, I want to read this quotation from Bruce R. McConkie. He said in The Promised Messiah, if we had sufficient insight, we would see in every gospel ordinance, in every rite that is part of revealed religion, in every performance commanded of God, in all things deity gives his people something that typifies the eternal ministry of the eternal Christ. 
It is wholesome and proper to look for similitudes of Christ everywhere and to use them repeatedly in keeping him and his laws uppermost in our minds. Excellent. Okay, so the 15th chapter of Zeezrom is, I, this is my take, Bryce. I think he's sick with fever because he sees the people that have captured Alman Amulek using his arguments. The arguments that Zeezrom used to attack, now that Zeezrom has been converted and he understands who Jesus is, it says in verse 3 of chapter 15, he lays sick with fever. And notice the arguments that they use. 14.6, it came to pass that Zeezrom was astonished at the words which had been spoken, and he was also new concerning the blindness of their minds. Well, what's their argument? Notice verse 5 of chapter 14 that they testified that there was one God and that he should send his son among the people, but that he should not save them. And many such things did the people testify against Alman Amulek. So Zeezrom hears his own arguments being used against them, and he hears about what's happening to them. Of course, he's going to lay sick with fever in verse 3. And it says that he has this burning heat, and he's in the land of Sidon, and he's just so sad. And after the destruction of the prison in Ammonihah, Alman Amulek leave and they go to Sidon, and they find Zeezrom, and this is what happens. And here comes this beautiful moment, and Zeezrom asks for healing, and Alma says, "'Believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation?' Now, this is the very man who was trying to destroy them a few chapters ago. "'Do you believe in the power of Christ to save you? Yea, I believe all the words that thou hast taught.'" If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. Yea, I believe according to thy words. And Alma cries out, O Lord God, have mercy on this man and heal him according to his faith, which is in Christ. And at that very moment, Zeezrom leaps upon his feet and began to walk. Once again, the message of the Book of Mormon is that anyone who cries out for mercy, anyone who repents and cries out for mercy, receives it almost immediately. That's a great message. I love that in the New Testament too as well. When lepers cry out, because leprosy is a symbol for sin, when they cry out, Jesus heals them. And so Zeezrom's healed, and we talked about this in the other podcast, he becomes a great missionary, and he does some wonderful things, and his whole life is dedicated from this point forward to the service of the Lord. And then it talks about this idea in verse 17. It says, after Alma having established the church at Sidon, so Zeezrom is repenting, and, and Zeezrom's on the path, seeing a great check, yea, seeing that the people were checked as to the pride of their hearts, and began to humble themselves before God and, and to assemble themselves together in their sanctuaries, watching and praying continually that they might be delivered from Satan and from death and from destruction. What do you do with that, Bryce, where Mormon says that there was a great check? What do you think Mormon's saying there? I think coming out of Ammoniah, where pride was their downfall, and coming into a new city, I think they're saying, wait a minute, let's not let that happen again. Let's not let the, that happen to us again. So we've got to establish a check on our pride, so that we don't become the people that, that, like Ammoniah. And I think that's a great message for all of us to say, boy, our pride can lead us into the same path that the, the, the priests of Nehor fell into. So what is your check on pride? And, and, and don't walk away until there's a check on your pride. So we've talked a lot about pride in the Book of Mormon. We will continue to talk about pride and all of the checks that we put on our pride. So having seen priesthood and humility, we now begin to say, okay, you've got to make sure that your pride has a check. 
And if it does, then move on to the next city. And I just think this is a great message for all of us after having seen the result of pride to make sure that your check has a pride. So what is the check on your pride? You know, with their government, they put a check on their pride with the judges, you know, their higher and lower judges, and you can throw out the higher ones. Our founding fathers said, we've got to have a system where there's this checks and balances. We can't have one person have all the power. I think teenagers, their check on their pride is going to be mom and dad. What would you say would be like an adult's check on their pride? I think the sacrament becomes one check on our pride because every single week I face the Lord. Notice that we stopped going to church. We stopped having sacrament meeting. We stopped having sacrament speakers. But what we didn't stop is the ordinance of the sacrament. And it gives you a weekly reminder to say, how are you doing? Are you breaking that pride like we're breaking this bread? Reading the scriptures is a check on our pride. Praying is a check on our pride. Hopefully listening to some two goofballs who are trying their best to preach the gospel is a check on your pride. Whatever we do to get the Holy Ghost into our life is a check on our pride. I like that. Whatever you do, there are many ways for each of us to get the Holy Ghost. Sometimes, even in listening to the appropriate music, I think there's, if we tithe our money, what if we tithed our music listening? What if every teenager who has a whole playlist full of the world's music gave 10% of their music listening to inspirational music that invite the Spirit into their life? What if we checked our pride constantly and allowed the Holy Ghost to come into our lives? However you do that, we hope that this podcast is one of the ways you do that. But reading your scriptures and prayer and music and thoughts and going to the temple when we can. And if we can't, how about we go to the temple grounds and we walk around and we seek the spirit that the temple brings. Check your pride. That's good. I think with closing, we're going to just talk about the destruction. And and we talked about it before, but in this chapter, it just says that the people were destroyed. Now, if you remember from our last podcast, when Alma and Amulek preached, they said, you know, this great city can't be destroyed. It just isn't going to happen. And then notice what In a day. Notice they pointed that out. Yeah, can't happen. Verse 9 of chapter 16 says, Thus ended the eleventh year of the reign of the judges, the Lamanites having been driven out of the land, and the people of Ammonihah were destroyed, yea, every living soul was destroyed, and also their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. But behold, in one day it was left desolate, and the carcasses were mangled by dogs and by wild beasts of the wilderness. And then it talks about the scent was so bad in verse 11 that they called it the desolation of the Nehors. Now, I think there's a pun here. If Nehor means what I think it means, which is to snort, well, if it stinks, there it is. There's a desolation of the Nehors. You breathe it and you're like, oh, that's disgusting. So I think there's a, a pun happening here. But in all seriousness, this idea of carcasses and mangled by dogs and wild beasts of the wilderness is a very ancient Near Eastern motif for chaos, for the beasts of the wilderness or the chaos dragon or the dogs of the wilderness mangling a city or making, you know, uh, Isaiah talks about that Babylon will one day never be inhabited. It will be a place for dragons and owls and doleful creatures. And it's this idea of the lack of order. The order of the Nehors 
is like the order of the Sodom and Gomorrahites. It's everybody out for themselves. And the only thing, the only fruit that brings is bitterness and chaos. Carcasses mangled by the dogs and the wild beasts of the wilderness. There is no order there. And there really are only two paths. There's the order of Melchizedek, which is order and truth and light and Christ. And there is the order of the Nehors and the order of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there really isn't a middle ground. You have to pick. Eventually, you have to pick a side, don't you? And going back to our message on the law of increasing witnesses, the Lord does not want that end for you. He does not want that to be your fate, and so he sends witnesses. If you reject one, he'll send another, a greater witness. He sent Amulek, and if you reject that one, he'll send another. He sent Zeezrom. And if you reject that one, he will speak to you from the very earth itself. He will shake the earth before you. As one last final message, this people have been warned again and again and again, and they absolutely refuse to hear the warning voice. And so let the world know that our witnesses are coming. We are testifying of Jesus, and more greater witnesses are coming. But if the world does not listen to the witnesses that come, their fate will be the same as Ammonia's. Please, let's help the world avoid that fate and testify of Christ and do what Melchizedek did in Salem and save them from this end. Excellent. We thank you for listening. We thank you for your time. Next time we will talk about Alma 17 through 22. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.